Hello and welcome to Reactive Spin the Byline podcast. I am Evi Kiori and this episode focuses on the extraordinary meeting of EU leaders in Brussels to discuss energy, Ukraine and food security, what sanctions became a part of the meeting, what happens with the ban on Russian oil, who was opposing to the ban and how did the leaders find common ground. We are also talking about monkeypox, the unknown to Europeans virus that has been reported in a number of countries. Listen to Daniel Bosch, infectious disease expert and president of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, explaining why monkeypox isn't the end of the world. EU leaders met and decided to ban more than two-thirds of Russian oil imports under a deal that stops tanker deliveries but includes a temporary exception for pipelines. And while leaders were negotiating indoors, environmentalist groups were protesting outdoors with Dominica Lasota from Fridays for Future mentioning the importance of oil ban for the environment. To hear more on what happened and why this summit was crucial, I'm joined by Reactive Skira Taylor. Welcome to the podcast, Kira. Thanks for having me. So meeting the EU leaders was the topic of the week. You were there following the negotiations. So take us with you and tell us what happened during the summit. So this was an extraordinary meeting of EU leaders. Um, it wasn't actually supposed to happen. It was put into the calendar as this kind of tied over between their meetings uh, to discuss energy, Ukraine, defence and food security. So really the issues that we've seen since Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Um, originally, sanctions weren't meant to be a part of it. They were kind of running alongside it. And some of the uh, people we were talking to thought it would actually damage the talks during the meeting if sanctions were brought in. Uh, but there were struggles to agree the sixth sanctions package, which would include an oil ban. And that was the most controversial part that was proposed earlier in May. Um, but there was really no agreement on it and particularly countries like Hungary were stalling. There was concern about this oil ban because uh, countries like Hungary are landlocked and most of that oil comes from Russia. So for uh, Hungary, there was this concern that, you know, you couldn't get a replacement of this oil via shipments very easily. Uh, and they wanted an exemption for pipeline oil, i.e. the oil that was coming from Russia. Um So there was a meeting of EU ambassadors on Monday morning and that seemed to make progress and it kind of threw sanctions into this EU meeting and added this thing to the agenda which basically pushed the uh, discussions much um, further into the night. Um, but even as the meeting started, we really didn't know what progress was going to happen. So when leaders arrived, you had the Latvian prime minister saying um, that even if there were sacrifices, you know, that even if European consumers, uh, European countries had to pay more, um, more European countries and consumers because EU governments can help um, by certain ways with these energy prices, uh, that they should still do it because paying more money is nothing to do, it is nothing compared to the price that Ukrainian citizens are paying. And that comment was clearly aimed at Hungary. Hungary then comes in, Viktor Orban comes in and says, there is no agreement, nothing is decided. And all of us are like, 
oh, okay, we've all of the things we've been hearing, maybe they're not true, maybe he's just saying things. Um, although to quote someone, when someone says that something isn't happening, it's probably happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so the news broke just before midnight. We heard that there was a political agreement on the sixth sanctions package, um, including this oil ban, but with those crucial exemptions for pipeline oil that Hungary wanted so much. So it's interesting being in the room when that kind of news breaks because every journalist is kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen and talking and then suddenly everyone is writing and um, you get this kind of rumours spread and people go, is that actually happening? Is this it? Um, So it did happen and everyone got very excited, but we're kind of seeing that that might have been a premature celebration because while there was a political agreement, the details are still to be decided. Um, There was a meeting uh, yesterday, it rolled into today and um, as of Thursday when we're recording, we still haven't seen this deal to be agreed. Now, the EU countries decided to ban more than two-thirds of uh, Russian oil imports. What does this mean in practice? So there were a lot of different numbers floating around. Um, The more than two-thirds refers to seaborne imports of Russian oil. Um, And that will be banned under the sixth sanctions package. It leaves the Drzhba pipeline, which is one that comes from Russia. Um, There's a North Drzhba, which goes through Poland and Germany. And there's a South, which comes down to Hungary. And I think it goes through Slovakia as well. Um, Ironically, uh, well, I've been told that Drzhba means friendship in Russian, uh, but it means chainsaw in Slavic languages like Romanian. Um, So... But I mean, even with that idea of friendship, you see this kind of USSR influence coming in here. Um, So Drisbar would be left out of the sanctions package. Uh, However, Poland and Germany have both said that by the end of the year, they will stop importing uh, Russian oil. And that means that North Drisbar would stop. And that brings it up to the 90% a ban of oil imports that the European Commission were talking about um, on Monday night um, or Tuesday morning. It, it went quite late. Um, and this 10% leftover will be reverted back to. We're not really sure what that means yet. And putting it into another sanctions package is possible, but it would again have the same issue that we saw in the last one. Uh, so yes, the final details are still to be decided. Um To do this and certainly to get all oil banned, there will need to be targeted investment in oil, particularly to replace the South Drisbur pipeline. Um, But for the majority of cases, the European Commission has said that the world market would allow for a quick, effective replacement of it. It may just be more expensive. And while you were mentioning the plausible solutions uh, the European Commission is trying to come up with, let's hear what Dominica Lasota from Fridays for Future had to say on this. So with activists from across Eastern and Central Europe, we came to Brussels because we are hearing that our so-called leaders are getting bored of the war in Ukraine and they are now trying to boil down on the promise of delivering the oil embargo. And so we came here in order to secure a full energy embargo because this is the right and the most important step if we are to truly stand for Ukraine and to stop the uh, Putin's invasion. Our priority now is um, to implement the embargo soon as possible because you know we have had a few Fridays for Future activists from Ukraine um, being killed during the war and so these are our people and if we are to 
be serious about what's going on is, you know, we have to stop this war is happening because this is a horror that happens every day. It's a horror that takes our friends, our sisters and brothers literally every single day for this, from this planet. And our goal is, uh, is to stop it as soon as possible. And the way to do it is to implement the embargo because we know that this hits Putin the most. And obviously it's challenging, but you know, we have to do the impossible now because otherwise, you know, we will be seeing more and more of this, this those tragedies and we cannot stand, we cannot stand any more of this. And so what is our proposal? Well, most of all, you know, do and use the technologies and the solutions that are already there. You know, the renewable sector has been there, but it has been blocked since years and we even now we are you know in, in frequent conversations with um, many of the representatives of different companies different in, in the sector and experts and we are hearing that you know we could use and gather so much of this uh, renewable energy even this year this summer and the coming months if only there were policies that could be you know very quickly passed through the parliaments that would you know unblock the wind sector unblock the uh, solar sector and across the Europe and so our proposal is, you know, a renewable energy revolution this year, this summer, right now, starting away. But it will not happen if, you know, Ruslan von der Leyen, Olaf Scholz um, and the other so-called leaders of Europe will be gathering and then they will push back on, um, on, on the plans to, to develop the clean energy and to, to conduct the just transition as soon as possible. And coming back to you, Kira, Orban opposed to the oil ban. What was the compromise on that part and what did the EU offer to him? So because the details are still yet to be hashed out, we're yet to see how much he wins. We can definitely say that there was a compromise to get him on board. Um, so he wanted the Drisbar pipeline to be excluded. Uh, that we are almost certain has happened. Um, he also wanted more money. Money is a huge issue to do with this because the European Commission, in its plan to phase out fossil fuels called Repower EU, it did kind of send some money Hungary's way. The issue is it's caught up in the Recovery and Resilience Fund, the, the COVID recovery fund, which Hungary can't access because of rule of law issues. So even though that money is there, it may not be accessible to Hungary. And so that was a big fight coming into this oil ban. Um, the other thing uh, Orban also wanted was kind of an assurance because the Drispar pipeline runs through Ukraine. He wanted an assurance that, you know, if that pipeline was damaged in the war, there would be the equivalent uh, oil supply. We're still kind of to see how that looks in, in practice or, or whether that actually ends up in it. Um, so yeah, as of Thursday, we... <laughs> Are still waiting to see what it actually looks like. Um, but I think we can safely say that Seaborn will be banned and the rest is just to see in the future. Thank you for joining me once more, Kira. You're listening to Euractive's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our Tech Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. And moving on a different topic, this time health-related, let's talk about monkeypox. To learn more on this virus and what is happening with it in Europe, I spoke with Daniel Bosch, infectious disease expert and president of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, and Directive's health reporter, Gidre Pesetskite. Welcome to the podcast. Daniel, let's start with you. What do we know about monkeypox? Uh, where is it coming from? 
So this is a virus that we've known about since 1958. So it's not a new virus, but it's a virus that we see usually in uh, it's endemic, meaning the, the place where we find it naturally is in Central and West Africa. It's maintained there in different types of rodents. It's not completely clear. But, uh, and so we have occasional cases of, of monkeypox in Central Africa and West Africa, most notably in Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And once in a while, we have some cases from outside of that area that are e- exported from Africa when a traveler comes back to uh, the United Kingdom or the United States or wherever it may be and was exposed in Africa and gets sick. And, and that, that can be um, a few cases, but here we have an unusual situation where we have quite a number of cases occurring in countries across Europe and in the United States, and that's a very unusual situation. It's not, I should say, a wave of infections across Europe. It's, it's defined points where the virus was introduced by people and then um, resulted in some degree of secondary person-to-person transmission from those points. And Gidre, what are the numbers and the figures? Why is the WHO so concerned about this disease? So the thing is that uh, there are more cases being reported outside uh, endemic countries. As for the end of May, um, 23 uh, WHO member states reported cases of monkeypox. And uh, there are over 250 cases already across the world uh, outside of the endemic countries. And uh, in Europe, there are 16 countries that reported uh, cases, and uh, including UK, uh, which is actually leading the way uh, with the most cases. Uh, they have over 100 cases. So uh, out of those 200 cases, half are actually coming from UK, which was actually the first country that reported um, uh, you know, the first case of monkeypox uh, coming from a traveler coming, uh, who was coming from Nigeria. To begin with, I don't think that they are too concerned. I mean, um, it's really in a way mysterious. It's uh, a lot of things unknown. You know, why the spread is happening now? Why is it for the first time uh, the spread is happening outside of endemic countries where people have no connection uh, to countries where the cases uh, are usually being reported? Um, but the thing is that I think that WHO really wants actually to calm down public and to give as much information as possible. Daniel, coming back to you and trying to understand more about the virus, what are the symptoms and how can it be spread? So monkeypox, um, once a person gets infected with monkeypox, there's an incubation period. That's the, the period, of course, for any infectious diseases between infection and when you fall sick. That can usually be somewhere around eight to 10 days, even as long as 21 days. And then a person will initially start with fever and some swelling in the glands are the typical things, not unusual from many other illnesses. But after two, three, four days of that, they will start to develop a rash. And that rash usually starts around the face and then can spread to the extremities. And it starts out with little red spots. We call them macules in in medicine. But then then they'll start to fill with fluid. Um, that look something like chicken pox, which most of us are familiar with, but then they start to fill with pus and become what we call pustules. And these can be um, relatively limited in just a few places in the body or can be spread throughout the body. Over the next few days and weeks, they'll start to crust over and to dry up and, and fall off. And then a person usually gets better without any real problem. Sometimes there can be some scarring from that and, and a few relatively rare, more severe manifestations. 
and and then it's usually done. There are people who have severe monkeypox infections. We we note two different strains or what we call clades of monkeypox. One of them that we see primarily in Central Africa is the more dangerous one, and that can have a case fatality up to 10%. That means one out of 10 people who might get that virus could die. The one that seems to be implicated in this outbreak in Europe and North America is fortunately the one from West Africa, and that one is less dangerous. It usually has a 1% to 3% case fatality, and, and so we don't see lots of deaths from that. And, and in fact, most of the cases that we're seeing now in Europe and North America are relatively mild. We haven't had any deaths reported from it yet. And this is not the next COVID. This is not a virus that's easily contracted. This is not something that's going to cause you know hundreds of thousands or millions of cases. What we do have is some unusual, not so much biological phenomena, but probably social and cultural phenomena. And this has gotten into various groups uh, of people who've had close contact, sometimes close sexual contact. And this is a virus that's spread by that sort of close contact, either through direct contact with the, the rash and the lesions that you have on the skin or through sexual contact or through um, the through um, respiratory droplets, the small the small droplets that come out when we cough or talk loudly that can land on someone's lips or eyes and infect them. So um, it's a relatively unusual situation where we have so many cases at one time spread by these clusters of close contacts. It's not a new virus per se. It's not a, as I say, it's not the next COVID. It's not something that's transmitted before you have symptoms or that's going to cause hundreds of thousands or millions of infections, but certainly something that we need to get on top of now and really understand how it's um, being transmitted and how, of course, best to stop it. Mm -hmm. And is there a treatment that uh, patients can follow? Most cases, first of all, are self-limiting. As I mentioned, the virus that's circulating in, in Europe and North America right now in, in certain populations has not caused any deaths that we know of yet. Um, that doesn't mean it's not a serious event and not, that there's no potential for causing deaths. Most people will get better on their own. It's their own immune system, like many other illnesses that we're all used to having um, from, from viruses that get better over a, a few weeks period and don't really need any specific treatment. There is a specific treatment, a, a drug um, that has been developed really not for monkeypox, but for smallpox. And this was a uh, smallpox, of course, doesn't exist anymore in the world in natural settings. It was eliminated through um, vaccination and declared eliminated from, from the planet other than a few laboratories that maintain it in 1980. But nevertheless, because of concerns of bioterrorism over the years that could potentially um, be, be a risk to people, there was a, a therapy and, and a new vaccine that were developed for that, but they're not widely available. So this is not a drug that you can go to the pharmacy and pick up or that you can easily order from any particular place. And probably the, the vast majority of people who have monkeypox infection, in fact, don't need it anyways, because they'll get better on their own. And Gidre, are there any measures taken by the countries the virus was detected? And if so, what kind of measures? So far, um, what countries are doing is, uh, for example, advising um, uh, to isolate uh, for those who are diagnosed with uh, monkeypox. And as this virus incubation period is usually from 6 to 13 days, but it can also be uh, up to 21 days. 
so ECDC advices um, for those who had close contact with, uh, contacts with monkeypox cases uh, to self-monitor for 21 days. Um, so uh, in case there was a risk. Uh, you know, people are just busy with trying to understand why, and scientists, uh, all medical communities, just trying to understand why the spread is happening. Um, and also it's being looked at, um, uh, could there be any mutation in the virus? But it's really unlikely as it's DNA virus. And um, mutations are really rare in comparison to, for example, uh, RNA viruses such as COVID-19. Daniel, what's your advice for our listeners? So first of all, as I mentioned, this is a disease that's spread by close contact and usually um, prolonged contact. So this is not something that your average person, you know, that most of the most of the world does not need to worry about this. You're not going to get this virus from just passing somebody on the street or passing somebody in a room or a building. This is something where you're going to have close contact with someone. So really, the, the message here is that um, be careful, of course, in terms of the, the close contact that you have with people. Um, make sure that they're healthy and you're healthy. And in some ways, it's a, it's a good thing that we're understanding this, that we are developing surveillance systems globally and diagnostic systems to understand when a new virus gets into a new place and, and to try to prevent that before it really gets out of control. And um, so, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing this and being, being able to pick this up in various countries around the world is an important thing. And really, we could consider that not good, of course, that it's happening and not good that people are sick with it, but good that we're aware and on top of it relatively rapidly in order to um, limit this to, to being you know, not a, a huge event on kind of the the global scale. Um, and as I said, it's a much different situation than COVID, an important situation that we need to address, but not something that is going to be the, the next COVID or the next pandemic. Well, thank you, Daniel Lengidre. And our time is up for this week. I am Evikiori, and this was your Active's Been the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, you can send an email at podcast at euroactive.com to let us know what did you like from this episode and what topic would you like to hear more on. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit euroactive.com for the latest news and listen to us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.